Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Faith Reconstructed. My name is Ian Harbour. We do these episodes once a month where we just have a conversation about deconstructing and reconstructing our faith and all that that brings with it, all the issues, the topics, the questions that we have. We want to deal with these and wrestle with these openly and honestly because these questions are worth asking. They're important. They make up the they, they give us meaning in our lives. And too often the church is not a safe place for these questions. And they should be. If any place in the world should be a safe place to ask questions about God and wrestle with the meaning of life and all these big things, it should be the church. And too often that's just not the case. And we need to change that. We need the church to be the place where we can have these kinds of conversations. And so that's why today I'm talking with Gavin Ortland. Gavin is a pastor in Ojai, California. He's written numerous books that I'll mention at the beginning of the conversation and a member of the Ortland family with Dane and Ray and all of them. And this conversation is just, mm. is so good because Gavin brings a pastoral tone to this conversation that is sorely needed. I think sometimes we can even think pastors and a lot of people who are deconstructing might wince at that a little bit. And I get that, but I feel like Gavin handles this the way people would want their pastor to handle it with grace and nuance and understanding someone who's wrestled with these questions themselves, honestly, and has come out the other side with answers. And even if they're not answers all the time, uh, at least with hope and with confidence and trust. And that's something that I hope we can all have. And so I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. There's a piece in there where Gavin talks directly to pastors who are walking with people who are deconstructing. And that's worth the price of admission itself. If our churches were more like that, they would be in a much better place. So with all that said, here's my conversation with Gavin Ortland. Enjoy. So I'm here with Gavin Ortland. Gavin is the pastor of First Baptist Church of Ojai in Ojai, California. I have to say, Ojai, the way it's spelled, does not look like the way it's actually said. Um, but Gavin has a PhD in Fuller Theological Seminary and Historical Theology, and he's written several books, a few of them being Theological Retrievals for Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation. Finding the Right Hills to Die On, and you have a new one coming out in October called Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't. And Gavin also has an apologetics YouTube channel called Truth Unites, which is a wonderful resource that everybody should go subscribe to. And he's arguably the best looking Ortland brother, um, but I won't comment on which one is more gentle or lowly because I hear that settled at the ping pong table. So I don't know. I don't know about that one. Uh, but Gavin, I'm excited to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Ian. Who who is more gentle and lowly at the ping pong table between you and Dane? You have to answer that question first of all. Oh, um, yeah, this comes up a lot. I, I don't know <laughs> gentle and lowly at the ping pong table. He's definitely the better ping pong player. Uh and and in general, the better athletes. So that's kind of been a lifelong frustration, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, he he wrote that book, so I guess we gotta give that one to him, unfortunately. But We'll save that for another time. <laughs> well, Gavin, um, I'm I'm really excited to have you on here. Like I was saying beforehand, um, I feel like so much of what you've written on touches on deconstruction and different things that people are wrestling with when they're wrestling with their faith. And um, you've also kind of had your own run in with deconstruction yourself uh, in your faith journey. You've put out a video on it, on your story, um, on your YouTube channel, Truth Unites. You don't have to retell the whole thing. That's there for people to go watch. But just give us kind of a brief overview of what that process has looked like for you and your faith. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's it's not really a dramatic story. You know, it wouldn't be it wouldn't make a good movie or something like that. I think it's just been uh, two seasons where I had to work through a period of disillusionment, cynicism, and then just wrestling with various doubts. I, I don't even know if doubt is the right word, um, more just a sense of angst 
and uncertainty. Um, you know, those those seasons can be confusing to the point where it's hard to know exactly how to describe it even. Um, so yeah, one of them was in college and that was kind of a, in some ways, kind of a stereotypical kind of thing of just wrestling through, um, what if I'm wrong? <laughs> uh, what if what I've grown up with, uh, uh, isn't actually true. And so asking the hard questions and then the vulnerability and the honesty and the courage that it takes to really consider the, the questions really consider, you know, uh, try to consider the other side. And then the other would be more recently, last five years or so, um, similar thing, um, feeling at times a sense of disillusionment uh, in terms of just the state of American evangelicalism and just, you know, whether it be uh, ministers who have let us down. Um, and there's there's a, a long list, sadly, of, of, of uh, Christian leaders and pastors who have fallen into some kind of controversy or disgrace or something like that. And that's, that's really confusing. Um, that can be disillusioning. Uh, the political environment, the general just fragmentation uh, within the church as well as within our society. And then just working through intellectual objections and, you know, having this experience where the more you get into it, the more you say, wow, this is complicated. This is not easy. This is not neat and tidy. You know, something like the problem of evil. <laughs> that is a serious, heavy duty objection. And I think that ultimately, you know, ultimately, actually, I think the problem of evil is another compelling pointer to God, but um, it's certainly also a, a struggle and it's, it's, it's no lightweight objection. So I think just um, that that's the big picture, just agonizing my way through kind of doubts and, or, or points of angst and kind of saying, and how do I know this is true? And um, so that we can we can press into any of that a little further, but I always try to give a, a succinct answer first so I don't drone on too long. No, I think that's super helpful. And the points that you talked about there, one, there's the intellectual doubts. Um, and then even, I mean, it's just interesting you saying the last five years, the kind of cultural evangelical disillusionment that you've experienced too. I mean, man, there are so many people that are experiencing that exactly right now and over the past five years as well. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of um, is kind of that inciting incident, that catalyst that's leading to a lot of people questioning a lot of these things and leaving evangelicalism or their faith in general. Um, and a lot of times it's that, you know, cultural political one that then raises all these other intellectual doubts. And so you've you've been in both of those seats before. And I think this leads us into kind of my first question really well, um, because the past five years have been really volatile for everyone. And one thing that, I mean, your PhD is in historical theology. And that was um, the first book of yours that I was became familiar with was on evangelical retrieval, historical retrieval, reaching back into church history to help inform us today. Why is something like theological retrieval important for evangelicals who at least in my upbringing, are not known for reaching back into to history for some of these things. And how do you think that could help someone who is beginning to or in the process of deconstructing their faith? Yeah, well, and I never want to take kind of a pet academic interest of mine and act like it's the answer <laughs> to everything, you know, so different people might find this helpful to, to a different extent. But I actually think it is really useful to kind of see the current dynamics in a bigger context and basically see how much bigger Christianity is than American evangelicalism. Uh, and that is, that is so useful to see because for a lot of us, I mean, again, to speak from my own experience and where I, I come at it with a sympathy for people who are struggling, some of, for a lot of us, some of the most painful experiences in our lives have come in the church. Now, that is so sad, but that's true. Uh, pastors are often mistreated in the church. Uh, other people are uh, lay Christians are often mistreated by their pastors. And uh, of course, you know, many, many churches out there are, you know, healthy, wonderful, thriving, flourishing places. But there's also churches that, that wound people. And so if you see that and then you and, and what I've seen happen so often is people tend to react in a. A, a bit of a pendulum swing. You know, if you're hurt in one context, you kind of run in the other direction, somewhat understandably. But uh, 
it's so helpful to see uh, the, I guess, just see the bigger picture. And, you know, one, so a couple specifics with that. One is that we see other saints and Christians who've struggled, even some of the most uh, influential Christians of all time. You think of St. Augustine, perhaps the most influential Christian of all time, and just the agonizing, slow process before he finally became a Christian. He described his conversion like on a Saturday morning when you wake up and you just lie in bed for a long time, and then finally you get the motivation to get out of bed. <laughs> he said, that's how I came to Christ. It's like, you know, not the most thrilling testimony, but but he struggled along the way with kind of youthful sins, lust and ambition and pride. And, and, uh, and then he found Christ uh, on the other side of that. Or you think of C.S. Lewis, you know, he really, uh, his book that he, uh, A Grief Observed, it shows true struggle in a mature, uh, humble, godly man and a brilliant man, but he's genuine. And it's kind of just a reminder of what we see in the Psalms, that a genuine faith will struggle at times. It will have questions at times. It will uh, ask why. You know, it will be confused at times. And it's just really helpful to see other testimonies of that. I also think church history can help you kind of see what orthodoxy is, can kind of help you distill, like, what is the essence of the faith, as opposed to some of the things that you you think are orthodoxy, but really it's just a feature of kind of American evangelical culture. And that's been really helpful for me on specific things, like how we understand creation, how we understand end times where I get into it and I realize, oh, the default view in our context is actually the opposite of the default view for most Christians, most times, most places. So again, it just gives a sense of context that I have found so useful. Yeah, I, I think that's incredibly useful too. It's interesting that you would even say like, sometimes our default is the reverse of the default of some people, of the, a lot of the saints throughout history. And it's interesting you bring up Augustine for a lot of reasons, um, because, you know, one, you've written a book on Augustine's doctrine of creation. Um, and I think he, you know, he was asking completely different questions than us. And he was pre-science and all the different things. He wasn't even having the debates that we're having. Um, but, you know, a lot of progressive Christians, people that haven't necessarily like discarded Christianity entirely, but they still claim the label. A lot of times I'll see that they're they also are claiming to be reaching back into church history. You know, they'll make the claim that there was never really one true Christianity, but a lot of different Christianities. And so because of that, they're still within the tradition too. I'm thinking of also like a recent little kerfuffle involving Pelagius uh, coming back into a lot of the conversation. And so how would you respond to that where there is a good looking back in the church history, but it's not like everybody back then got it right either. How do we know how to navigate that? Yeah, I um, feel pretty strongly this way that there is this um, uh, un unified core that we can see amidst all the diversity within Christianity. There's this common core. C.S. Lewis talked about this at one point when he wasn't yet a Christian and how he's he like the same quality of Christianity he kept getting in all these from all these different sources and that there's this core stream. And uh, so when progressive Christians are appealing back to, you know, multiple Christianities and that kind of thing, it's like, well, um, the whole reason we have like uh, ecumenical councils where we define things, the whole reason we have things like the Apostles' Creed, those, those weren't just written kind of just for fun. <laughs> you know, they were written to combat heresy. And, and, it's not wrong to set boundaries and say, this is in and that is out. Uh, this is orthodoxy, that's not. And that's what they were doing uh, over and against the Marcionites and the Gnostics and all these other heretical groups. And so I think that, um, you know, any retrieval that's um, either pulling from outside the, the boundaries of orthodoxy or acting as though there isn't an orthodoxy at all but there's actually multiple different things we call Christianity is, um, is problematic. And I would just say, you know, in terms of what to, how to engage with someone, I think I often think of second Timothy two twenty five, which talks about um, giving gentle instruction. And I found that so helpful in my pastoral ministry to think of th that combination of terms it's instruction. 
You know, you don't just kind of hang out. <laughs> you, you don't just kind of talk endlessly and, and aimlessly. You give instruction about what the gospel, what you do so gently. And it says in the hope that God will give them repentance. And so when we're engaging kind of a, in a polemical way, I find that a helpful verse to think about what should my heart posture be? It should be gentleness and a hope for uh, the good of this person, but also there should be clear instruction that's faithful to the gospel. So that's helped me think about that a little bit. Mm. You know, it's so interesting that you say that and pull out those phrases. Literally this week I was reading in Hebrews and at the end of Hebrews four, he talks about holding fast to your confession. And then in right next after that in Hebrew, in Hebrews five, it talks about how Jesus is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. And I thought those two things side by side were really interesting of like, no, hold fast to that confession but deal gently with those who are going astray. I thought, I thought that was interesting. And then you bring it up in a completely different book here too. I thought, I think that's interesting. Do you feel like there's any limits to theological retrieval? At what point is, do we look back and, and start to find limitations there? We do need to start looking forward in our, in our theology. Does there, how do we balance those two things? Um, yes, certainly there are limits. I mean, if you're just going back I mean, the whole idea with retrieval is you're going back, learning from the past, and then you're wanting to apply that to the present. So it could get to a point where you're just uh, living in the past and you're not applying it to the present. Or it could be get to a point where you're just trying too hard to make it work. You know, sometimes when something like this becomes a movement, people can be um, uh, just try. It can be overused or overworked. So there is that danger. And then there are some things, of course, we shouldn't retrieve, you know, things that fall, like we said earlier, fall outside the bounds of orthodoxy. But I find it helpful with that to see the particulars in light of the whole. So if you've come across an oddity here or there, kind of measure it against the whole. And again, that's where retrieval can be so helpful in just giving you a sense of what are the parameters of orthodoxy? What, have, what has been held by basically all Christians from all times? And that's, again, just one of the things that retrieval helps you see in a way you probably can't see it as well, just approaching something um, in the present moment. Well, and that that goes real nicely into another thing that you've written about is when you're talking about the bounds of orthodoxy, there are things that are more important than others and within that. And so you've read a book, uh, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, all about theological triage. Talk to us about what is theological triage and how you think that might be able to help someone who's deconstructing as well. Okay. So theological triage is just a system of ranking doctrines. Some things are more important than others. We see this in the scripture. Jesus speaks of the weightier matters of the law. There's different kinds of punishments for different kinds of responses to um, the prophets. Uh, there's actually in the law that, you know, provisions for different kinds of sin. Um, it, you know, there's Galatians 1 type passages. I can't believe you're abandoning the gospel. And then there's Romans 14 type passages. Be careful. Don't judge people. Be flexible. You know, so faithfulness to the gospel will at times mean digging down. But then at other times it will mean open hands and listening and caution. And so triage is just a way of ranking different doctrines, um, trying to see what are the most important things. I think it can help people deconstructing. I mean, the, the big thing I think about so much, as you know, Ian, I mean, these deconstruction stories, it's the whole movement right now. And I, if you go to YouTube, other than my video, if I just type in spiritual deconstruction, maybe you'll be doing stuff on there, but I don't see any positive <laughs> treatment of it. It's all people celebrating deconstruction. And uh, so it's got me burdened. But, but one of the things I see so often in these stories over and over again is people they're actually deconstructing more like second rank or even third rank doctrines. But then the entire faith is ultimately rejected. And so triage can help people like that by saying, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Deconstruct things about your faith or your understanding of your faith that need to be deconstructed, that may represent errors in your understanding of something, but that's not the same as deconstructing your faith as a whole. And just the ability to make those distinctions, you know, thinking at the level of like third rank doctrines versus the gospel itself. Um, that is so helpful. I, I've come back to that a lot, you know, and it's helpful just to say, 
there's I may not know the truth about every single doctrine, but this core of orthodoxy um, is so clear and is so compelling. So I think it can help in that way. And I would just encourage people who are wrestling with doubts about their faith always to keep this in mind, because I think it can be helpful of is what I'm wrestling with at the core of the gospel, or is it more of like a second rank doctrine or a third rank doctrine? Yeah, I, I think that's so helpful because I, I, when I look back at a lot of my deconstruction, I do think that is probably most of what was going on was I was questioning and rethinking a lot of those second, third tier doctrines. But because of the way I was taught, if you tossed out one of those, the whole thing fell apart. You know what I mean? And so um, there was a little bit of questioning in the first tier, but it was really mainly those. Um, and I think having those categories allows for there to be, well, one mystery, you know, like you said, we're not going to have all the answers to all these um, but then unity as well within kind of the diversity of, man, I think this about this, you think that about that, but these are not the, this is not the gospel, you know? Um, but when it comes to those first tier issues, I, um, I remember sitting with a friend a couple months ago talking about deconstruction and he was telling me, you know, that questioning those second or third tier issues kind of felt easy. And that for him, it was really important to reach for those first tier doctrines and to question those as well. How, how would you respond to someone and pass for someone who feels the need and feels like it's important to re-examine those first tier doctrines as well? And can you do that and stay a Christian? How does that work? Mm. Okay. Well, one thing that helps me uh, think about this whole issue of doubt is to recognize there are different kinds of doubt and different degrees of doubt. There are more sincere. Some some expressions of doubt are more sincere. Others are less sincere. Um, you know, even among the 12 disciples, there's, there's Judas <laughs> and then there's Thomas. Okay. But then there's the others. And so like there's different kinds of doubt because some of them, some of the others doubt in Matthew 28, but Thomas seems to be especially kind of uh, singled out for that. We call him doubting Thomas and so forth. So um, even just there, and even just that right there is already a good reminder to us. The disciples of Jesus Christ who spent three years with him doubted when they saw him in Matthew 28 at his resurrection. So I actually think this maybe encourages these deconstruction stories to some extent. This might be a contributor that in the church, it just seems we have very little space for thinking about doubt. And um, it seems kind of all or nothing. In some places, it's almost as though doubt is celebrated. Um, but then in other places, it's almost like there's just no space for doubt. We don't really talk about it very much. And if people feel that way, they don't really know what to do. You know, they're, they're not really seeing a, a clear pathway forward for how to deal with that. So, um, so I would say if it's a more sincere doubt, and if it's someone who's just saying, I want to be sure that I'm right, what, what do I do with this objection? I don't know an answer for that objection. What do I think about that? Well, that's probably just what every thoughtful Christian will do from time to time. You know, just, okay, I, this is a tough question. Let me think about it. Let me work at it. So there's that. I want to leave space for that. On the other hand, you also see people sometimes who you, you get the feeling they want to constantly tear things down. They want to constantly attack and question, and that's in a different category in my mind. So if there's someone who is, if, I would say if you're fully, knowingly, and, and finally rejecting first-ranked doctrines, that, that, that does put you out of orthodoxy. That's kind of why we call them the first-ranked doctrines. Um, that's what they, that's definitional to what they are. Um, if there's someone who's wrestling with them, I have all kinds of, oh, I don't want to go on too long. I have all kinds of thoughts about how to pastor people with this because I really care about this because I feel like it's done badly a lot. Um, I, I want you to talk on that a little bit because I think that's really important. And I, I do think Here's here's what I'm worried about, Kevin, is I do feel like with everything opening back up post-COVID is a lot of pastors are going to get back in their churches and wonder where a lot of their younger, under 40, under 30 people went. And it has a lot to do with the deconstruction. And pastors 
I don't probably what you're about to say, not to put words in your mouth, but what I feel is I, I don't think they are that equipped to handle a lot of what people are wrestling through. And so I would love for you to actually speak to pastors um, who, who are going to have to be dealing with this moving forward. Okay. Awesome. Okay. So, so I'll say just a couple things here. This comes out of my own experiences, my observations. Uh, I'll start with this observation that as I listen to these deconstruction stories, one of them, if there's any single common thread, now, obviously we want to treat every person as an individual. Some one person's story might be totally different than another's. So you don't want to put someone into a system or, uh, uh, you know, a trend too quickly, but um, there are some commonalities. If there's one that I hear the most, it's that they had a question, they asked their question, and they got shamed or squelched for asking the question. And so one thing I would say for us pastors, what we must do um, is create an environment where if you're really struggling with something, you're not going to be negatively pressured, shamed, called out in some way like that. Um, for example, I think this happens a lot where someone, you know, you can imagine how it happens so easily. Someone volunteers to teach Sunday school to the little kids. Um, they're just good hearted, trying to do their best, you know, trying to serve a church. Uh, they're teaching a Sunday school lesson. They're just doing their best. They don't, have, they've never been to seminary. You know, one of the kids asks their question and says, Hey teacher, you know, what, I don't know. Uh, why did God kill all those animals in the flood of Noah? And the Sunday school teacher doesn't have a good answer and they feel threatened because it's, it's actually embarrassing if you're put in this role and then you don't know the answer. So instead of just saying, I don't know, or let me get back to you after I've done some studying or thinking about that, the question is somehow reflected back negatively on the questioner. And I've heard this has happened so often where people they feel as though they're wrong to have a question or something like that. So it's the first thing, and I know this sounds kind of basic, but I just think practically, pastorally, I think this really is important. I've seen this play out so much where I think it really matters. So encouraging an environment where people can ask their honest questions, and it's not there's no shame upon that. Francis Schaeffer, the great evangelist and apologist for the Christian faith, used to say, talk about honest answers to honest questions. You know, that should be our heart to try to help people. And it is infinitely better to say, I don't know, rather than to give them a bad answer. <laughs> it, it, if you say, I don't know, that probably will not do any harm. The person probably doesn't need you to answer their question right away. You could come back the next week and give them a resource. You could do some studying, you know, but if you give them a bad answer, so many people, they get fed an answer to their question that isn't satisfying and they, they cling to it for a while, but then when they see it doesn't really work, they feel disillusioned and, and that their trust was violated in a sense. So just, it's better to have no answer than a bad answer. So I would say create an environment that's safe like that. I would say it should always be the case that we encourage people to study. We should never, people should never feel that they're being sort of pressured away from looking into something. You know, sometimes parents act like this. It's like, oh, I don't want them to go to college. They might hear some ideas that, you know, cause them to challenge their faith or something like that. Well, that's not good. We, we shouldn't be afraid. That's a fearful posture. We should be open to studying. There's a passage in Screwtape Letters where C.S. Lewis, you know, uh, it's this demon counseling another demon on, on how to tempt human beings. And the demon is saying to the other demon, don't waste your time on arguments. Uh, don't try to convince him that this is true. Try to convince him it's trendy and other things. And then he says, when rationality is a good thing, whenever we step into rationality, we're on the enemy's territory. And the enemy, of course, is God. So in that spirit, I think argumentation, reason, study, those are always to be encouraged. Always encourage people to think, encourage people to study. Those are always our friend. Those are always our ally. They might not result in the answer right away, but they're so important in the process that people are given space to study and to think and to wrestle. Another thing that's exceedingly simple, <laughs> but again, it doesn't, sadly, we need to say the simple things sometimes is remain friends. Keep being friends. Like you don't need to stop being friends just because someone is struggling or doubting. 
I mean, this happens too. And you think, come on, people, we got to do better than this. You know, in the church, in the book of Jude, it says, be merciful to those who doubt. Jesus was was kind to Thomas. He didn't he didn't blast Thomas away and say, "How dare you not believe?" You know, he actually confronted Thomas and and met him. Now he called him to believe. So you know he wasn't just infinitely patient, but he uh, he met him where he was at. So I think um, practicing relationship, love, and kindness in the process, not not rushing someone, being patient with them. Sometimes, you know, someone is having a, a doubt. They're not sure if they're deconstructing or not. They think they're deconstructing. And the, the best thing you can do for them is just go play golf and hang out and have fun. And if they want to talk, you talk, you know, it, just maintaining relationship. People sometimes just need to be in a safe community to work through their, their questions. Um, and then I would say the last thing I'd say is really press them to consider the alternative. Say, okay, Suppose you're right and you and, and the Christian faith is something you need to reject. Now what? Now think about that. Look down the road and, and press through every implication of that. Because what I think sometimes is it's not a fair fight. People are doubting their faith, but they're not doubting their doubts. And so their faith is getting pummeled with, with questions and interrogations. And what about this? What about that? But the alternative worldview or worldviews are not being interrogated and they're getting a free pass. So I like to say, um, let's, and this is what my uh, uh, apologetics book that's coming out this fall is all about is, you know, just how much more dignifying and wonderful and edifying and uh, happy a Christian worldview is compared to atheism. And so I like to say, you know, we could talk more about this maybe later, but just Pressing through the implications of if you reject all faith, think about what that means for your view of morality. Uh, the older atheists were pretty honest about that. They saw people like Nietzsche or the way Dostoevsky teases out, it out in his novels. They saw the implications of that for human dignity, for individual rights. If you care about um, human dignity, it's, it's, it's hard to find a solid grounding, I think, for really having a high view of human beings in the way like something like the image of God gives you in an atheistic worldview. Um, I, it's tough to know where you get that from, where, where, where you can ground that. Um, hope, you know, I think people love, love to some of the ideals in our culture about love and hope. They're hard to ground in an atheistic worldview. So anyway, yeah, I could say more about all that, but just pressing the alternatives, helping them think, you know, don't, uh, don't, don't let it be an unfair fight. Doubt your doubts as well as your faith. Everything you just said, I think is excellent for the church to hear uh, every single one of those. I agree on that last point, especially how there is that tendency to question the faith that you grew up with intensely, uh, but then just sort of accept another default without that same level of rigor. And if we apply that to everything, I do think we'd see Christianity stand up more. And I want to come back to that in a second. But one one more thing on that, you mentioned friendship. If you scroll through deconstruction Instagram for too long, you'll come across the term holy ghosting. And it's this phenomenon that just happens to people who deconstruct, they deconstruct, you know, to a certain point, and then all their Christian friends just sort of stop talking to them. And of course, that only encourages further deconstruction because I thought, well, of course, they only loved me for the beliefs that we share, not for me as a person. And so I think that point, um, I mean, that's a practical point anyone can do today. You know what I mean? Is actually just to be friends with your friends who are who are deconstructing and having their doubts. I'm, I, I agree with everything that you just said. And talking about your new book that's coming out, uh, why God makes sense in a world that doesn't. The subtitle of your book is The Beauty of Christian Theism. You're doing an apologetics book, but the subtitle uses the word beauty. Why did you choose the word beauty? Okay, um, here's another one where I could go on and on. <laughs> but I'll. Uh, this one's like freshest on your mind. It's about to come out, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> and it's really important to me. And it's what's helped me. Uh, this is going to sound strange, but. What's helped me with intellectual doubts the most has actually been the beauty of the gospel. And mm -hmm. I know that that could be misunderstood and misapplied. Um, it's not, I don't believe in it just because it's beautiful. 
But nonetheless, the beauty is an important ingredient in the whole process of working it out. At the start of my book, I quote the, the passage in Puddleglum, where Puddleglum is this character in one of the Narnia stories where this uh, evil sorceress is trying to convince him and his friends that they're, they're down underground. She's trying to convince them the overworld above the ground doesn't exist. And she has a spell on them, so they're starting to believe it. And he basically gets to a point where, to, to oversimplify it a bit, he says, if that's right, I don't even want to believe that. I, I'll, just still, I'll just still hope in the overworld anyway. Because it's a way that, if you're right, the made-up world that is in my mind is way better than the real world. Now, again, that could be misunderstood or misapplied. But there's something to that if you really think through the ultimate implications of a, th a theism that can ground ultimate transcendent hope and a naturalistic worldview that can't. And I try to get at that in this book. It's The book is basically four classical arguments recast in a narrative frame. So I'm using classic theistic proofs. So like the cosmological argument is the cause of the story. If our world is a story. That's the working metaphor in the book. Um, the, the teleological argument, which is the argument from design, is about the meaning of the story. Um, the moral argument is about the uh, drama or plot of the story of our world. And then the, the Christological argument, the argument from Christ, is about the hope of the story. So I'm saying these classical arguments are ways of um, telling a story about the world we live in. And I'm, what I'm saying is, number one, this is a lot more plausible, makes a lot more sense than the alternatives. But number two, it's way better. It's just a better story. Like it's happier. It's more dignifying to human beings and human struggle and human artistic accomplishments and uh, human desires and human relationships. It's more elegant. It's more interesting. It's more expansive. It's more evocative. It's just a better story. And so uh, I'm trying to make that case. I'm trying to do a both and. I'm trying to say it's more plausible and it's more beautiful. And I think I spend the first part of the book just explaining why I think that particular appeal might have a little more reach with some of the people today than apologetics books from 20 years ago, where it's just strictly more focused on issues of truth. I think people today, because our culture is so distracted, our culture is so outraged, People are so busy. There's all these different factors that I think make an appeal to beauty help our apologetic right now. Hmm. There was a question that was submitted that I think goes perfectly with this. Um, basically, I've seen this too, where a lot of churches will sort of adopt a lot of kind of the therapeutic language around our culture right now, just kind of the, you know, spiritual, not religious, the DIY, your own faith type things. And they'll adopt a lot of that language and just kind of put some Jesus on it. And then that's, that's kind of the whole church right there. But what you're talking about is how Christianity isn't just like our system, our worldly systems, our spiritual, but not religious beliefs with some lipstick on it, but like, it's more beautiful than anything else. So what would you say is some of those things that really make Christianity pop and stand out? And how can we as Christians and as a church highlight that in a way that doesn't just kind of sound like the therapeutic culture that we're living in? Mm, yeah. Well, one of the things Alan Noble talks about this in his book, Disruptive Witness, how our, our evangelism right now needs to take into account what you just outlined about how people will tend to assume that the, what we're talking about is just one more, when we're presenting the gospel, they'll tend to assume that this is just one more sort of flavor you can kind of pick and choose from, <laughs> kind of in the spirit of the do-it-yourself spirituality. Um, and so we have to work really hard to try to help people understand, no, we're actually presenting the gospel as the transcendent story, the truth that... Um, requires and calls for our complete and ultimate allegiance. And it's hard for people to even hear that because they're in our culture, we're so bombarded with a different way of kind of constructing our identity. You know, you pick and choose a little bit from everything. And so it's hard for people sometimes to even understand that that's what we're saying. 
Um, but I like to try to help people think through the beauty of the gospel. Uh, this is going to sound kind of like an odd way to go about it. But if you think about uh, the reality of death, um, that has a wonderfully clarifying effect on our uh, worldview and on our perspective on life. So like, for example, if we think about, well, why is the gospel more beautiful than the story of naturalism? Well, if we think about death, uh, we we start to get into the struggles that some of the classic existentialist philosophers kind of agonized over. Like, is there, the way Leo Tolstoy put it, the Russian writer, is there any meaning that I can build in my life that death won't take away from me? And uh, the, the fact is that if, if the story of naturalism is true, then it really is hard to see any kind of larger transcendent meaning to our lives or to the entire human story, because ultimately, at some point, sooner or later, each of us individually will die. And then there will, the entire human race is not going to live for all of eternity in a naturalistic universe. It's just a matter of time. Somebody once said, once you've lost eternity, it doesn't matter whether it's today or in 10 billion years. Once you've lost eternity, you've lost that transcendence. So, uh, you know, you could think of it like this. If you think of the life of the most godly saint, you know, who did, who is the best person, you know, who did so much good for the world. And then you think of like the worst person, you know, on a naturalistic story, all you have to do is wait long enough and they'll equal out. There won't be any consequence from the differences that will actually last. Uh, in a Christian worldview, if you think of uh, Jesus rising from the dead, uh, it changes everything. Uh, it means that this, the struggle of our lives actually matters and will matter forever. The choices we make every day will have a ripple effect that will never, ever end. And uh, if you really sit with both of those options for a long time, um, it, boy, that's a helpful exercise because now I'm not thinking about my evangelical culture that I was a part of. Now I'm thinking about the bigger picture and what's really at stake. And I just am passionately convinced that um, a belief in God can can ground. Honestly, I, I think, you know, Nietzsche, the great philosopher, he, for all that we would probably disagree with him on, he saw with great clarity the consequences of when you lose God. And the kind of chaos that comes from that ultimately. And I think it's worthwhile and helpful right now amidst all the deconstruction to really consider his insight into that and kind of look down that tunnel, see what's down there. If you step away from a belief in God, so many other things do seem to fall apart, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. I, I've long thought that one of the best apologetics for our culture today is just Ecclesiastes, just mm -hmm taking everything in life and holding up next to death and saying under the sun, what is the meaning, you know? And I, uh, I recently saw a critique of Christianity that basically just asked the question is all of Christianity, one massive coping mechanism for death. Mm. And I kind of thought to myself on one hand, no, but on the other hand, I feel like only someone who has never really been close to death can ask that question. Mm -hmm. And as someone who has lost many, many people I love in my own family and life, I, I kind of hope that they're, that the Christian story is true because like you said, it is more beautiful. And so asking, you know, being able to hold something like everything lives up next to death and ask those quite those pressing questions, like you said, of what does, where does this meaning come from? How does this happen? Where do, how do I make sense of any of this? Um, you know, I, I think that is a sober question that we all have to be, be thinking about. Mm. Yeah. In the book, if I could just quick comment on it. in the book, I just mentioned, you know, imagine that you're, uh, with a child who has a terminal illness and you're the one taking care of that child on a naturalistic worldview. What can you even say? What hope could you even give to that person? And that's so sad to think about now, on the other hand, you think of the thief on the cross. And from the worst circumstance imaginable, you get the words today, paradise. Okay. That puts in bold relief what is at stake. I wanted to read that book beforehand, but now I really want to read that book. So you're just, <laughs> it sounds great. Um, man, if to kind of wrap this up, Gavin, 
just going back to your story and the doubts that you've been through, um, both intellectually and even more recently, just politically, if there was someone in your life, and maybe there was, but someone in your life who was older than you, farther down the long the path of life than you, that was walking through that with you, what would have been something that they could have said to you or done with you that would have been helpful in those times? You know, a lot of what I would say to this question would be circling back a little bit earlier to the, you know, pastor, what I would, uh, counsel I would give to pastors wrestling with people. Um, one part of that, though, that I'd want to especially underscore that is coming more into my mind as I'm uh, just thinking about it from a personal angle for me is the need for patience um, to not rush someone, you know, not to not to not give someone the feeling like um, you've got six months, <laughs> you know, because sometimes we do that. We, we act as though someone needs to kind of you know, it's like, or, or what we do is we say, I love you and stay in relationship with you for a time, <laughs> but eventually you need to kind of get, okay. And, uh, you know, anyone who's been through a season of grief knows that, uh, especially a deeper grief, it really cannot be rushed. Uh, you know, and that's one of the things grieving people often experience is like for a month, people are dropping off meals, they're, they're sending you encouraging texts. And then, but then that tends to fall away while you're still grieving. And so then it gets harder. And sometimes people can struggle to be patient with you in the grief when, because they feel like, gosh, it's been a year. Come on, you know, there's, but sometimes deep grief, it actually takes a long time. And I wonder if there's maybe something similar with working through doubts at times that we just want to be careful not to ever pressure someone or make it feel like they've got, there's a, there's my timetable, you know, it, God has his timetable, but it's not my timetable for somebody. Um, so being patient with people, um, I think underscoring also the point about this friendship and relationship and even just being okay to just be friends and not feel like you need to solve things. But sometimes it's just like maybe the best thing that you could do for someone if they're struggling um, is just kind of say, gosh, I really do not know. I'm perplexed with you. <laughs> and and be perplexed with them about something that's actually a comfort you know there's a, a man who lost all three of his sons and uh wrote a book about it called the view from a hearse and he said people would always come up to him and uh some people would quote scriptures that they were designed to encourage him and they would say you know here's what here's why you have hope and they were trying to say things to cheer him up and he said, I couldn't wait for them to leave. <laughs> uh, and then other people would come to him and say nothing, but just be with him in the grief. And he said, I couldn't bear to watch them leave. And I think that's a common experience because I think we should never underestimate. I, I'm making a, as I'm talking out loud here, I'm making a comparison. I'm kind of realizing between grief and doubt. And I know those aren't the same thing, but I do think there might be some commonalities um of grieving people because being doubt i mean again most of my comments are cast for sincere doubters i understand that there are people out there who want to doubt of course but for someone who's sincerely doubting it does feel like grief it's dark it's confusing it's scary it's it's um you're not in control of it you know it's like you're on a whitewater rafting thing and you're not sure where the river's going to bend um and so patience with someone being with them in it. Um, I will say one of the most profoundly helpful things for me has just been knowing really godly Christians. And that sounds so simple. <laughs> but uh, one of the most uh, helpful things we can do is not be a hypocrite. <laughs> I so it sounds kind of simple. As but... simple as that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, of, of course, all of us will have some level of hypocrisy at some point in some way. But but just, you know, when I the people who have helped me the most have been people who are genuinely good people. I actually think this is a good argument for Christianity is the lives of saints. There's something about them that just cannot be explained unless Jesus is real. So um, anyway, I could probably go on about this, but those are some thoughts. I'll, I'll stop there in case you want to push it further. 
maybe maybe we'll just have to do it again sometime, Gavin. Because I I have I have enjoyed this conversation so much. What I've appreciated, you've I feel like you've brought a couple things to this conversation, Gavin. And um, your pastoral tone, uh, one towards people who are doubting and deconstructing. What what I hope people hear is a pastor like yourself who has been there, who understands what it's like, and feels like maybe this is possible in the church, and I don't have to leave and go somewhere else for this to happen. Maybe not in my church, but the church, you know what I mean? Because pastors out there do understand this on some level. And I do think you've also brought a pastoral tone to pastors of saying, hey, this is happening in your church. This is something that your people are going through. Let's try to actually be there for them and help them and be patient with them and not just holy ghost them or write them off or shame them, but actually be there for them and take them seriously. And I think that is an incredible contribution to this whole conversation. And I just want to say thank you for speaking into it and, and uh, joining us today. Thanks a lot, Ian. And thanks for the work you're doing. I'm, I'm a big uh, fan of what you're doing. So thanks for the privilege of being a part of it. conversation with Gavin Ortland. Man, there are so many things in there that I feel like we could talk about forever. But I think this is a helpful conversation, both for those who are doubting their faith, wrestling with questions, and just, I think they just need to know that that's normal. That is stuff that people go through when they are growing in their faith. And I wish somebody had told me that. Um, It's perfectly normal to have questions. It's perfectly normal to look around at the culture and go, does this really line up with what Jesus was talking about and with what the Bible says? And, and that's important for us to do. And it's important for pastors to have space for that in their churches, in their congregations. And I hope with conversations like this, we can help make the church more of a welcoming place for people who are doubting and asking questions. Because like Evan said, it's kind of something we should all be doing if we're being thoughtful Christians at all. So. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast. We do it once a month, not that often. So subscribe so you don't miss it. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.